ESPN Daily is presented by Supercuts, the smarter, easier way to get a haircut. It's not just any haircut. It's Supercuts. We continue to explore the roots and legacy of Title IX this week here on ESPN Daily. It's Thursday, June 23rd, Title IX Day. I'm Allison Glock, head of W Studios and executive producer of the four-part documentary, 37 Words from ESPN Films. This series is all about Title IX, which changed the country 50 years ago by making it illegal to discriminate on the basis of sex. No person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. Today, filmmaker Dawn Porter is back with me. She has more stories of women who took those 37 words of Title IX and used them to affect change because Lord knows change doesn't happen on its own. These stories range from the basketball court to the Supreme Court, and Don Porter and her team weave them all together so well because they really are connected. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you for joining us to continue our conversation about 37 Words and this incredible series about the civil rights battle of Title IX. Can we talk about one of my favorite people in the whole world, basketball icon and all-around legend, Don Staley? It is not unfinished business any longer. South Carolina has captured its second national championship. Mission complete for Don Staley in South Carolina. You know, I've spoken to her. She tells me that she feels like her life is destiny manifesting. And I call that, you know, my path being divinely ordered. And I didn't force it. It just always seemed to happen for me. And maybe that was because I got a praying mother that, you know, just covered me. She's very much in the pocket of where she thinks she's meant to be and was always destined to be. And I just want to talk with you a little bit about how your conversation with her was and what you took away from it and what you feel like Dawn Staley represents in culture. I mean, I watched Dawn Staley play and just, I remember her then, this just like tough, fast, skilled player. Loose ball, Ward off the top of her head, but somehow finds Staley and Dawn puts it in. She just looks smart on the court. And so, you know, having the opportunity to interview her was such a gift. Her accomplishments are legendary, Olympic gold medal, pro teams, and now the winningest coach and the highest paid female coach in college basketball. But all of that aside, I think my favorite moment in speaking with her is when I said to her, how does it feel when you're playing? What does that feel like? And she said, 
for me, what does it feel like to participate in sports? It is, it is what I'm supposed to be doing. It's like second skin. I've been so fortunate to be able to do the things that come naturally to me. Like it's not a hardship. I welcome whatever challenge there is within sports. It feels good, like it feels right. She feels perfectly at ease. She feels fully herself. And I just thought, what an opportunity. <laughs> mm -hmm. That she's exactly, it's what you're just saying, she's exactly where she's supposed to be. And when you think of, you know, kind of where she came from, sports has always been there for her. We were creative. We, we made basketball courts out of crates. My father was a self-made carpenter, so we had equipment. We had saws, we had hammers, we had, you know, we could find a scrap piece of wood, and we made ourselves a basketball court. And the innocence of playing the game that way um, was birthed out of us being resourceful. One of the things that Don Staley observantly pointed out when she was a young person, when she was going to the Olympics, when she's getting her gold medal, and we have the archival footage of a very young Don Staley pointing this out, is that because you had these opportunities for women and girls to progress during their elementary, junior high, high school, and then college years, you see these really well-developed athletes who are then ready for prime time, literally. And once they had women's professional leagues, they could play into their prime. Their careers weren't artificially cut short by lack of opportunity. In basketball, it's a strange thing that I always have been given the tools that I needed to be successful at the right time. And I've always, you know, been in positions of, like, where, where do I go next? And then basketball, I don't, I, I, didn't, I didn't even set goals. The only goals I had in basketball were to win a national championship and to be a gold medal Olympian. Other than that, I kind of just let the game take me to where I needed to go. Her goal is to get her young women to get those leadership, athletic skills, to get that confidence that they're going to take with them no matter what they do in their lives. So many of our, our young ladies won't go on to play the game on a professional level. So that leaves navigating life fairly quickly. Like, fairly, you got four years. How do we help? young women in our game navigate the most important aspect of their lives, and that's being a woman. This is a different dynamic when you're, when you're coaching women. I just feel like, you know, we need to make sure we are being protectors of our game. And the best way we do that is we have to let the ADs know that women should be coaching women and women need to get the opportunities in our game. Her commitment to young women is extraordinary in, in just so many ways. And the other thing I want to think about with Dawn is like she's transcended <laughs> everything. Um, she's won everything you can win. 
She's overachieved in every way you can you can possibly do. She's finally getting her her flowers in the in the more popular culture just outside of athletics. But you know, as inspirational as that all is, it's like heartbreaking to me that I don't know that women have to achieve so much. You have to win all the things. <laughs> you know what I mean? Before you're paid equally or before I don't know. Is that just me? Yeah. I mean, it's too familiar a story that you have to be exceptional in order to be recognized. Billie Jean and and Donna Dever, like when they started the, you know, women's like sports um, foundation, their goal is that we don't need it. (laughs) Right. That we don't need an advocacy organization. That time is not here yet, but that's the goal. Another story you included in the series was about the softball team in the Pacific Northwest and the girls fighting for their field. Tell us a little bit about that fight. So this is a school in Oregon. The high school had a huge budget for renovating the entire high school. And the, in the original plans, there was a space for a boys' baseball field it looks like a pro team could play on this. I mean, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous field. The girls had been playing on a public park with grass that had a lot of potholes. It's the Northwest. It is rainy. It is muddy. They were sharing the parks with baby carriages and people just using the public park. People walking their dogs in the public park and we know the results of walking your dog in the public park. Before every game, the coach who had been at the school, who had actually played at that same high school herself before becoming the coach, the coach would go bring sandbags in order to prepare the park. We just did what we were supposed to do. You you hiked it up a mile from the school up to the field that you played on. And, um, you know, you cleaned up the dog poop there and you uh, raked the field. and, and, And part of that... I felt was instilled in us that was part of our job, that was part of feeling um, like that that field was yours and that you owned it. You know, the girls were also embarrassed when they they were hosting other teams that the condition of their field was so poor. It was also a hazard. You know, if you've ever played a sport Mm -hmm. on an uneven turf, um, you know, it it was really not safe for the girls. So, but they played on this field. But then when the renovation happened, there was a lot of excitement about we're gonna have a real field. We were all excited. Everything was great. Fantastic. We're going to have these plans drawn up and, and, you know, come back in the 2019-2020 school year. We're going to have a softball field. Baseball's going to have a baseball field. It's going to be great. And then the plans for the field just disappeared. Before we even got into the construction part of it, um, softball field came off the plans. Baseball field didn't, but the softball field did. And the girls were devastated. Their coach was devastated. She was angry. I wasn't real quiet about it. I haven't been. She is a longstanding supporter of the school. And so, you know, they realized as they're watching this gorgeous new field being built for the boys that uh, it just wasn't fair. It was like you, th- you thought you had it. It was like right there. All this work, all these meetings, all these dots you put on saying, you know, what we want the fencing to look like, what we want, you know, dugout, you know, all this stuff. And then 
It's like gone. It's hard. And so enter Title IX. Two lawyers volunteered to help them. They sued and they won. And the lawyers were really, really not only strategic, but also creative. And so part of the settlement was that the school agreed to return to the original plan and to renovate the field for the girls. And the lawyers for the girls' softball team negotiated that if the girls' field was not completed, the boys also could not play on their beautiful new field. Lo and behold, it's time, and there's this gorgeous state-of-the-art field for the boys, and not a shovel had been put in the ground for the girls. So the boys started to realize, and the, and the boys coach, that they were going to also have to play in that crappy public park. It was very interesting. So my co-director, Nicole Noonan, um, who's just genius and brilliant, we noticed that as soon as we brought our cameras and we asked for comment from the school to explain why hadn't they built a field for the girls? Like, what was that about? And so the next time that we showed up with cameras, there were some backhoes there. <laughs> so uh, they are building that field <laughs> and the girls will come. <laughs> we'll be back with more from filmmaker Don Porter after a break. The NFL schedule drops this week, kiddos, and you can be there to catch all the action live and in person with Vivid Seats. Experience every touchdown, every tackle, and every eye-popping play of your favorite team. And to kick it off, Vivid Seats, the official ticketing partner of ESPN, is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code DAILY. That's code DAILY. Download the app or visit vividseats.com today. Vivid Seats. Experience it live. In a previous conversation, we talked about the prominent faces of Title IX and women's civil rights, Gloria Steinem, Billie Jean King, and others. And I I wanted to dig in a little deeper here to some of the women that aren't as well-known, but were equally essential to advancing the women's movement. And I know there are a few narratives you found as you were filming that really stood out to you. One of them being Aurelia Davis. Who was she? I love Aurelia Davis so much. Um, Aurelia Davis is a working mother. She and her husband had one daughter, LaShonda Davis. And Aurelia was uh, working in a, a, a factory and her daughter came home one day and said that a boy was bothering her. This was in elementary school, in fifth grade. This boy was trying to touch her daughter's breasts, reaching towards outside of her pants, near her vagina, touching her. It was all unwelcome. And Aurelia said, well, did you tell your teacher? The daughter said she had told the teacher. So Aurelia Davis thought, 
like any parent would think, I need to make sure my child is safe. This is wildly inappropriate. And so she kept pressing the school to take care of her child, to assure that her child could get an education unmolested. And it really was molestation. He was not only harassing her daughter, he was harassing other girls, but her daughter, Lashonda, was the only one really complaining. The school really did nothing. This after the school year had started back in January of 1993. You never think they'll come home and say the little boy that, that's sitting on side of her trying to look on a dress or a skirt or trying to grope a breast or uh, rub against her vagina. Uh, you know, it just, you know, and I'm thinking, where did he learn this from at 10? You know, he should be playing with little, little dump trucks or stuff like that. They kind of chastised him They wouldn't move desks. They wouldn't separate the children. And the harassment continued. It made me mad because, you know, when she told, or should I say when the girls did tell, come together as one, it would push them under the rug, so to speak. They should have got the most respect, not just telling me that boys would be boys. That didn't sit right with me. I couldn't tell you the words that really came out of my mouth, but it wasn't pretty. And Aurelia Davis eventually decides that she's going to sue. And it was at her daughter's request. Her daughter said, you know, can we get a lawyer? LaShonda came home and she asked me, did her dad and I still have a lawyer? And I said, yeah. She said, I think what he done to me is wrong. And for them to stand back and let it happen, I just want to hurt them. Uh... We need to, we need to sue them. So the two of them essentially pursued this case that went all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States. And the Supreme Court found in a five to four decision that student on student sexual harassment violates Title IX. And it is one of the cases that is relied upon today to protect all students. So this very ordinary and yet extraordinary woman, it was a multi-year battle. It was more than five years to pursue this. And with the help of uh, Verna Williams and the National Women's Law Center, they prevailed. It was Verna Williams' first time arguing in the Supreme Court. It was only her third time arguing in the appeals court. And yet they won and they preserved rights for everyone. That's incredible. And this was... She was based in rural or small town Georgia, correct? That's right. Yes, very small town. And so it was a great personal cost that the Davises pursued this case. They're a Black family. The boy harassing was white. LaShonda Davis was picked on in school. Another teacher asked her mother if she enjoyed the attention. And they, you know, stood their ground. And thank goodness that they did. This is really the intent of Title IX, is you protect the child's ability to receive an equal education. And you can imagine if you are being harassed each day. LaShonda was having nightmares. 
she even wrote a suicide note in elementary school because she didn't know what to do. Her teachers were not protecting her. The principal was not protecting her. And as a 10-year-old, 11-year-old, she couldn't figure out a way out of this situation. But her mother stepped in and with the help of those lawyers, you know, got protection and said that the law does uh, recognize that as a cause of action. Those interviews with her mom are just heart-stopping. I tear up every time I watch them because of just the that fierce determination to not let her kid down. And no matter what it might cost in the town, you know, people wishing you would just be quiet and go away and get over it or, or minimizing what was actually happening and her ability to navigate that and stand strong in, in her conviction about what was best for her child. is It really resonates. It's just a, a beautiful, beautiful moment in the film. Did you feel that in the room when you were filming? Yes. One of the things that struck me is her mother had kept all the newspaper articles and even her notes that she started keeping a diary recounting all of the harassment. So she had a record of it. One of the things she said is she couldn't live with herself if her daughter had come to her for help and she had not tried. It was just about my child, you know. Um, she needs to be defended, defended. And uh, she was just a child. You know, you kind of like the big bad wolf. If you want to say something, you need to talk with the mama bear. What I love too is that she was so determined when it first started happening, she went to the library and was researching on her own, are there laws against sex harassment in schools? And she didn't find a law, but she didn't find, she said, there's nothing that says it can't be. And so, you know, that imagination, that determination, that motivation, that being able to see beyond your own circumstance is one of just so many reasons why I have so much respect for her. Yeah, it's really profound. And the consequences of harassment, especially among kids, are often ignored or minimized. And it's very much the, well, they're just boys being boys. And what do you expect? And I think what's lost and what was not lost here is how that changes a trajectory of a girl's life. You know, it, it redefines you to yourself. It can truncate your ambition. It can make you small. You know, and there was that beautiful quote that you have in the film from her attorney where she says something akin to, I knew this was just a case, but this was also somebody's life. Yeah. You know, sometimes um, there are moments in history, moments in the law that kind of transcend the facts of the case. And they remind us all about the power of taking a stand This is one of those cases where they were not going to shut up. They were not going to be made to feel small. And that lesson, you know, stayed with LaShonda and her mother. They were honored as the Glamour Women of the Year. So, you know, coming from small town in Georgia for that honor, you know, it means something. You were once an attorney. Did that weigh into your relationship with this story? Did it provoke feelings about it? 
Absolutely. I mean, it's not often that you have that sense of satisfaction. Verna has gone on to have just a tremendous legal career. She is the dean of the University of Cincinnati Law School. She, you know, worked at the National Women's Legal Center. The law is a very blunt instrument and it takes a lot of time. And so to have that kind of satisfying moment where it feels like the right thing happened is is very rare. But when it happens, it's so special. It affirms your belief in the values of our country. And I think we could use those reminders that sometimes it does work out. That's a lovely, optimistic note. (laughs) I will cling to it, Dawn. (laughs) We need a couple, right? I will cling. More from Dawn Porter and the women's stories she tells in the documentary 37 Words after a break. Now let's talk about the play of the week. The pressure to follow up Hypnotic and Cognac weighing heavy on the team. Hypnotic was in the cup, blue, and ready for the play. And boom, Añejo Tequila came in with a smooth assist to Hypnotic's tropical fruit finish. Shaken, strained, poured. It was green and good. The playmaking splash shifted the tempo. Another great cocktail from the Hypnotic team. Every season is hypnotic and tequila season. Hypnotic liqueur, Bardstown, Kentucky. 17% alcohol by volume. Hypnotic reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Shopping for Mother's Day is usually a challenge because you people wait until the last minute. But Macy's Gift Finder makes it incredibly fast and easy to find the right gift just in time for Mother's Day. Whether you're shopping for your sister's first one or for your fashionista mom who likes to make a statement, Macy's Gift Finder has so many great gift ideas that you can easily pick out something special to celebrate with them both. You can shop by price anywhere from 25 bucks and under to, say, 100 bucks and below. You can also sort by category, like fragrance, handbags, and more. Or gift lists, like for the mom who has everything. Or even pre-wrapped gifts for grandma. Find top brands like Studio Pro Model Beats headphones, Polaroid cameras, and Samsung smart TVs. So, what are you waiting for? Mother's Day is May 12th, and it'll be here before you know it. Macy's has the perfect gift guide to make picking something for mom easy this year. Head to Macy's.com slash gift finder today. That's Macy's.com slash gift finder. One of the stories that you unpack in this series is Angel City, which in a way can be seen as the next iteration of this fight. The National Women's Soccer League just kicked off its 10th season with two new teams taking the field. One of them, the Angel City Football Club in Los Angeles. And it is backed by a star-studded group of women investors creating the largest female lead ownership group in professional sports. What struck you most when you were delving into that story of a woman-owned and woman-led sports franchise? Yeah, Angel City is so exciting. The idea behind Angel City was to like build a better mousetrap, to not just mimic the men's leagues, but to actually make it better. And so many of the obstacles to women um, succeeding and excelling in sports, you know, part of them are financial. 
getting paid enough to be able to play professional sports. The reason Brittany Griner is in Russia is because she's playing, you know, in the off season to make more money because a person of her skill is not compensated according to skill. So Angel Cities has, you know, they're they're thinking about every aspect of the game from not only how to be a winning team, but to be successful economically, to be successful with fans, and to adequately compensate the players for their participation in in that success. Players getting a share of revenues from lots of different sources, not just getting, you know, a take it or leave it kind of salary. But what I really, really love about Angel City is how they are just examining every aspect of the game and not accepting the, well, that's not how it's done. No one's going to hand us equality. Like, you got to do it yourself. And that's what the Angel City owners and players are, are doing together. It's also another way for women who have been incredibly successful, like Abby Wambach, like Julie Foudy, like Mia Hamm, to continue and to pass on their knowledge. One of the most chill bump moments in the series is is that Abby Wambach, with her righteous anger, you know, in her retirement, you know, she doesn't she didn't have the savings of a an athlete of her stature because she wasn't paid the same. She didn't have the opportunities, you know, because of her gender. And and so take us through that. She she gets the her lifetime achievement award basically, and then what happens? I mean, Abby Wambach is a phenomenal player. She's so exciting to watch. Led her team. Mia Ham credits her with saving her career because you know, Abby comes in with just a spark of electricity and allows that women's team to, to triumph. Rapino gets a crossing. It's towards Wombat. Oh, can you believe this? Abby Wombach has saved the USA's life in this World Cup. So Abby Wombach, phenomenal athlete, is on stage getting the SB Icon Award. She is sharing that award with Peyton Manning and Kobe Bryant. Thank you. Uh, It's such an honor to be up here alongside Peyton and Kobe. You guys are my heroes. For me, it was never about trying to be the best player in the world or scoring more goals than anyone else. What it was about was just working as hard as I could and being as committed as I could, embracing every challenge. She recounts like how proud she is to get that award completely deserved. And I remember feeling on stage so grateful. Like, finally, here we are, we women, we have finally made it. They are finally seeing us. With every step that we walked off that stage, I remember feeling like, wait, that was that was amazing. My, that was like kind of a great bookend of my career. Why do I feel so pissed off? Why do I feel so angry right now? And yet she knows that as she retires, She's got to look for a job to pay her mortgage. She doesn't have Kobe Bryant money or one of the Manning brothers' money. And as the three of us walked into our different retirements, my biggest concern was how I was going to freaking find a new job. I was, like, terrified, like, so stressed about how I was going to survive, like, what I was going to do. Because I didn't make enough money in my career to be able to support the rest of my life. That's true. That's still true for almost every woman professional athlete, no matter who you are. You're still worrying about that next thing. And so 
That really is also part of the spirit behind Angel City um, in making sure that if you are at the top of your game, if you are a phenomenal athlete and you have worked your entire career to get to that place, that you can also enjoy the financial benefits of that hard work and that success. You know, the proof is in the pudding. People will go watch women at the top of their game. The audience is there. And so what Angel City is doing is capitalizing on that audience, but making sure that it's a sustainable franchise. And that's what's so exciting about just investigating and figuring out how to do it better. You know, that's the story of Title IX. That's the story of women athletes, of women activists, is figuring out how are we going to do it better? (laughs) How are we going to be creative in figuring this out for ourselves, not waiting for someone to hand it to us? This gets to something that I call the plague of gratitude. Mm. And this notion, and I'm, I don't know a woman that isn't guilty of it to some extent, but that whole, I'm thankful to even be here. These, these are delicious crumbs. May I have some more, you know, like, oh, I'm just, I just, just don't mind me. I'll just have this tiny seat here at the end. And yeah. it feels like what Angel City represents to me in this new generation of girls that you profile in the film is a move past that mentality past the gratitude, thank you, I feel so lucky, you know, to stepping into the space and saying, I deserve to be here. The inspiration is that the girls of today are not thankful for inequality. (laughs) They are outraged (laughs) that they still have to deal with this. I'm reminded really of something John Lewis told me when I was making a film about him. Is something we discussed a lot is he had to imagine a world that he could not see. He did not see a place uh, of equality for him. And the women of Angel City, the women who fought for Title IX, the lawyers, the plaintiffs, all of them had to make it up as they went along. They had to say, this is what it should be, even though everything around me is telling me that it's not, that that's not the case. They had to still imagine it and believe in their own imagination and determination. And that's a really hard thing to do. You know, there are so few times when women are encouraged to be loud, to take up space. And that's what all of these women are doing. Did working on the series change your relationship to sports? Working on the series did change my relationship to sports. I am a very big sports fan. I'm a huge football fan. I love tennis. As a kid, I used to sleep in my Mets jersey <laughs> because my grandmother was a huge baseball fan. That that love of sports and competition didn't really translate to playing. You know, when I see how much sports has meant to so many women, I feel like I should have tried harder (laughs) to play because you don't have to be like perfectly gifted in order to play. But I really appreciate sports at a different, a different level. I appreciate what sports does for the everyday person. 
I appreciate that opportunity for girls to feel powerful when so often we feel vulnerable or we're encouraged to be quiet and not assertive. So it did change my relationship. I, like everybody else, like to watch the stars, but now I'm thinking like, Mm -hmm. I really see the benefit of just everyday participation. Well, Don, it's not too late. You can join <laughs> join the DGA uh, softball league. <laughs> well, so I've taken up, you know, tennis and I love it. Well, thank you for allowing us to see the world as it can be and doing it so beautifully with this four-part series, 37 Words. In a world of not always great news... <laughs> Is that the understatement of the year? This series was so motivating and such a good reminder that change takes time, but it is possible. I'm Allison Glock, and you can watch the documentary series 37 Words about 50 years of Title IX, streaming now on ESPN Plus and Hulu. We're taking-